on War and Peace and Life. We're up to part four today. And just to quickly review where we've been, in part one we talked about the fact that God initiates restoring our relationship. He initiates making peace with us first. And He pays 100% of our 100% while we were still enemies. We were completely and utterly His enemies we were completely against him, and yet he did all the work. He, did, he initiated and did all the work of making peace with us at his expense while we were still enemies. And then we talked about the fact that conflict is an opportunity to serve others and to be more like Jesus by dying to self, and that's a tough thing. But conflict is an opportunity to be more like Jesus and to serve others by dying to self, by looking out for their interests which is not our normal tendency. In conflict, our normal tendency is to look out for our interests, look out for me, but to look out for others' interests. And then last week, we looked at the idea that unity is paramount, that we need to be diligent to preserve unity, that unity is what Jesus said would, would be what gives away our identity with Him, as we love one another, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another, that Jesus said in his prayer to God the Father, I pray that they will be one as we are one so that the world, so that the world will know that you sent me. And so our unity is paramount, and Paul told us to be diligent to preserve unity, and that we oftentimes champion our cause, we champion our thing, and we prioritize some issue over unity, and that we need to be uh, diligent to preserve unity even at the expense of your issue or your thing or the way you want things. So that's what we've talked about so far. So now here's a, here's a fun question. Let's pray first, then I'll ask the fun question. We should pray first. So now you're anticipating. That's good. Let's pray first. Good morning, Father. Lord, I thank you so much for this time together this morning. I thank you for the fact we've been able to already meditate upon you and, and focus on you and sing praises to you. And Lord, as, as we were reminded at the beginning of the service this morning, that all blessings come from you, that everything comes from you. And Lord, that we now inhabit your blessings that flow from you and that we are a blessing to others only as, you, as we receive blessing from you. Lord, right now from your word, may we hear you and may that change us and pass through us to others. And as we study your word, may it change our hearts and allow your spirit to work in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, depending on your background, your uh, church and spiritual background, here's, here's the question. What do you have to confess to be saved? What do you have to confess to be saved. All right, Jesus Christ the Lord. Any other answers? Okay, that we need a Savior, that we're sinners. Anybody just want to save flat out sins? Okay, that we can't go to heaven without Him? Or confess your sins, right? All right, all good answers, and some of those answers were correct. What do you need to confess to be saved? A lot of us 
We're raised with the idea of one of the things you have to do to be saved is to confess your sins. In fact, if you were led through a sinner's prayer, depending on the version of the prayer, it might have included asking God to forgive your sins as part of your moment of salvation. But to start off our morning as we talk about confession, pleading the fifth, salvation and restoration start with confessing Christ, not an apology. And we're going to unpack that for a minute because that's a little interesting thing. We, we have it very kind of programmed into our, our cultural mindset that that moment, of, that moment of salvation, part of it is I need to confess my sins. Which, as we're going to unpack this morning, leads to all kinds of interesting issues of, well, then what happens when I keep sinning? And many of us, if we grew up in the church, like myself, where we, we prayed that prayer at a young age, and then you kept messing up, you began to doubt your salvation, and you prayed the prayer again and again and again, because you felt you had to keep praying it because you kept messing up. Because we associated our moment of salvation with confessing of sins. But the idea that our moment of salvation is not about confessing our sins, it's confessing Christ. And trust me, this is going to be important. Real quick, just I'm going to jump at a couple quick, quick verses. It's not our main text for today, but Luke 12, 8. Luke 12, 8, Jesus speaking here. And he says, and I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man, will confess him also before the angels of God. So here's Jesus saying, the trick is for me to confess you is you confess me. He doesn't mention confessing your sins. He says, confess me. Turn over to Romans chapter 10. Again, we're moving quick on these. Romans 10. And we quote oftentimes, if you've had an evangelism course, or if you ever learned the Romans road, you learned Romans 10, 9, and 10. Well, let's start with Romans 10, 8 through 11. But what does it say, Scripture? The word is near to you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. What is this word of faith? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses Christ, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. So here, notice there's no mention of confessing sin. It's confessing Christ. Confessing that you believed. How was Abraham saved? The Bible tells us in the New Testament, Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him, credited to him as righteousness. That Abraham's belief, faith in Christ is what justified him. Again, no mention of confessing your sins. But we have this idea that's crept into our system sometimes that part of that moment of faith is we have to confess our sins. Which, if you think about it, slightly contradicts the whole idea of come as you are. Come as you are, but as you come, you better be confessing because you have to confess your sins to come to God. No, you don't. You have to confess Christ. You have to confess Christ. 
One of the stories that Jesus told about the kingdom of God was about the prodigal son who came and the father responded to him, ran to him before he had confessed. In fact, if you notice, the father hugs him and the guy even hasn't had a chance to confess yet. But the father saw his return and hugged him. We, are, we believe and we are justified, which it means made right, made righteous by our faith in Christ. That is not earned by an action. So we do not earn it by an action like confession. When we confess Christ, we confess that He is, that we need Him and that He is our Savior and Lord, that faith justifies you. It makes you righteous. Interesting. Yet today is about confession. So wait, shouldn't we confess sin? Ira, are you saying we shouldn't confess sin? Where are you going with this, Ira? I'm concerned now. Should we confess sin? The answer is yes. And so there we're going to turn to 1 John 1. Way back near Revelation, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. Verses 5 through 10. 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Now many of us, again, in our evangelism class or in whatever, as we learned our faith and as we learned to share our faith, we learn 1 John 1.9. And sometimes when we've witnessed to people, we've, we've trotted out 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sin, He is faithful, just forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if you look at the context of 1 John 1.9, 1 John 1.9 is written to believers. It is not written to people approaching the faith. It is written to people in the faith. 1 John 1.8 is talking to people and telling them that this is how they know they're in the truth. And the truth is in them. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So he's addressing Christians, us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, again, the truth's not in us. So he's talking to believers because he's saying, hey, believers, if you don't think you're sinning, you're a liar. If you don't think you have sinned, you don't understand God. But if you confess your sin, then you're good. And he will forgive you. So now we confess but we confess our sin in the relationship, not a one-time confession, as if it was part of our earning salvation. This is what can trip us up. 
because we think that our point of salvation involved confession. And then we don't know what to do with later confession other than to feel really guilty. But the confessing of our sin takes place within the context of the relationship. So once you have come to faith in Christ, your first instinct, now that you've come to faith in Christ, is to what? Confess your sin. And you are going to begin a lifelong process of confessing your sin. And that's what 1 John is saying. Because if you say you're not sinning, and you don't understand what's happening to you. You don't understand the truth if you don't think you have sin. Yet we have sometimes this idea that the minute I enter into this relationship, part of, me, part of the terms of me getting in was confession. No, confession is what you do once you're in. In fact, the minute you're in. But you are saved by your faith in Christ. And then that salvation should lead you immediately to confession. And as he says in verse 10, don't deny sin, confess it. Because confession is important. Turn to Psalm 32, and you'll see how this ties into the idea of making peace in a few minutes here. Psalm 32, 1 through 5, gives the benefits of confession. Confession's huge. Confession is massive. Psalm 32, <clears throat> 1 through 5. This goes very well with 1 John 1.10, which says, don't deny your sin, confess it. Psalm 32, 1 through 5. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. <clears throat> I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. And we'll just move on there. But he says, man, when I didn't deal with my sin, it was killing me. But once I confess my iniquity to you, ah, now I'm free. Now I feel better. Now I'm restored. Confession restores the relationship and heals us. But again, this is important that we understand. We tend to think of confession as atoning. To atone means to make right or to pay for. And we tend to think of confession in terms of this is how I pay for my sin. This is part of my punishment or my restitution is I need to confess. <clears throat> but that's not confession. Confession is to acknowledge and to receive the blessings of forgiveness. To acknowledge sin, not to atone for it. And as we unpack this next part, we need to keep that in mind. Confession is not the prerequisite of the relationship. It is a response to the relationship 
And it is not meant to make up for what we've done. It is meant to acknowledge what we've done. So let's talk about how do we deal with sin. Because when it comes to fighting among ourselves, especially in church, sin is a big part of that. Sometimes it's the color of the chairs or the carpet or the drapes. Sometimes it's, you know, where we're going to put things. But sometimes it's actual sin because we sin against each other. How do we deal with that? Well, the first is there's an idea that we oftentimes miss, which is corporate confession. In fact, corporate con- confession is the biggest thing that we struggle with in the American church because uh, our American culture has so conditioned us into the individual Individualism, we're all in it for ourselves. We struggle with corporateness. I mean, one of the big struggles today is nobody wants to be a member of a church or a member because, well, that membership, uh, I'd rather just stick, I, I just, I like to keep my independence. We struggle with corporateness, and yet we're called to be a body, and corporate confession is a thing. If you look at Nehemiah 9, we're not going to turn there this morning, but for your own notes, Nehemiah 9, 1 and 2 and Daniel 9, 4 through 6, you'll see examples with Nehemiah and with Daniel where they confessed corporate sins. When you see Nehemiah's confession and Daniel's confession, neither of them are confessing sins that they personally had done. But they're confessing on behalf of their people. We have done this. And by the way, notice that when they confess, they confess, we have done this, even though he had not. Nehemiah was faithful, yet he confesses unfaithfulness, and he doesn't say, those people were bad. I'm so sorry for them. No, Nehemiah stands among them and says, we have done this. Daniel was upright. But Daniel doesn't say, Lord, my people are losers. I'm so sorry for them. Daniel stands among them and says, we have done this. And there's a place for corporate confession. As part of the church assessment process, many churches that have been assessed, their first, and I I was happy that they didn't require this of us, they didn't feel we needed it, but a lot of the churches have gone through an assessment, do you know their first prescription out of five is to hold what they call a solemn assembly, which is run by a pastor not of the church. And the whole church comes together, led by this outside person. And the church confesses before God, we are sorry for failing to prioritize the Great Commission. We are sorry for failing to make disciples. Because the church had been told to do this by the Lord, and the church had gotten caught up in doing everything else. And so it's not any one person's sin The pastor doesn't sit up there and go, man, you people, I've been trying this for years. New people resist. The church together says we. It's not about, well, I didn't do it. It's, well, I'm part of a body, and we. And the church confesses. And sometimes churches have to confess sin. And it's not about that some individual messed up. It's that the church needs to come before the Lord and say we. One of the things tonight, we're not going to have a time of corporate confession necessarily, but one of the elements of why it was so important to me to do an in-house dedication tonight is because part of our refocus and restructure is to be more focused on outreach, more focused on connecting with our community. And so tonight, part of what I want to do is we need time of corporate prayer to pray for the people who are going to come to the public one. 
Because we need to hold them up before the Father, and we need to do this corporately. And so this is idea of corporate confession for corporate sins, because the body can sin. We see that in Nehemiah and Daniel. Secondly, confession before the body. Now this one gets really sticky, and it's been abused. Confession before the body. Turn to Matthew 18. We're going to look at a couple different places. Matthew 18 Matthew 18 is sometimes called the uh, church discipline passage. It's talking about dealing with conflict. And first it says, go to your brother privately, and then if he doesn't listen, bring someone who can work with you guys together. And then Matthew 18, 17 says, if he, the sinning person, refuses to listen to them, this now more than one person, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by the Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I I am there in their midst. Verse 20 is the, one of the most popular taken out of context verses in the church. We lift 20 up and use it in all kinds of inappropriate ways. This passage is about dealing with sin, and it says, all right, this person was caught in sin, and I went to them and I tried to bring restoration. And that didn't work. So then I brought in a, a, a third party to help. Help try to get through to this person. Probably somebody that this person trusts since they're not responding well to me. And we go to them together. And they still don't respond. It says, so finally, if that whole process, it doesn't mean you just do it once, but if that whole process melts down. And this is someone who's part of the body. The idea is this is part of the community. It's not just some random stranger. This is someone who has been part of the body. So if a small part of the body couldn't get through to this person, it says, now you tell it to the church. Now, this isn't a shaming mechanism, which is how it's been misused. It's meant as a redemption mechanism to try to get all hands on deck to save and rescue this person out of a destructive choice, out of sin, to try to restore them. And it says if that fails, then treat them as not part of the body, as someone who requires reaching. Don't consider them any more part of the body, but as a Gentile, someone that you're going to witness to because they have rejected the body. So it's not a shunning mechanism, but it's a restoration mechanism to bring the whole body together. And we don't like that, again, because we don't want to deal with stuff. But the idea is to bring restoration because the whole body is affected. Because if one part of the body is hurting, the whole body is affected. If my thumb gets a bad infection, it's going to spread and affect my entire body. So the entire body needs to be involved, if need be, in bringing restoration and help. We won't turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 6, the Corinthians got in trouble because there had been sin in their body and they'd done nothing about it. A guy had taken his dad's wife, and Paul says, and you've done nothing. You've got diseased happening in your, in your church body, and you've done nothing about it. But in 2 Corinthians, if you'll turn there, we'll see it is 
it is dealt, something is dealt with, possibly the same situation. We're not sure. <coughs> In 2 Corinthians 2, 4 through 8, is where a sin has been dealt with. An individual in the body has been dealt with by the body. And look at what Paul says about it. 2 Corinthians 2, 4 through 8. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, because he confronted them about it, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to see too much, to all of you. This guy's sin hurt all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. They disciplined him. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. He says, so now here's somebody that's needed to be dealt with. And he's needed to be dealt with before the body. He says, but hey, don't overdo it. And make sure he knows how much you love him. Because your goal is to restore him. Your goal is to bring him back. The goal of confession before the body is to bring restoration. This is why it's important for us to understand the role of confession is not atonement. Confession is not intended to be your penance. To rub your nose in it, to make sure you suffer. The role of confession is to experience restoration. And here he says, listen, don't, you don't want to overwhelm this guy. You want to affirm your love for him. The goal is to restore. We confess in a context of relationship to restore. Finally, the personal. What happens when it's personal between people? Not a church issue. It's a church issue when it affects the whole body. You say, in some way, all sin affects the church body. True. But not all sin is public. And a private sin does not need to be dealt necessarily with the whole body if it can be dealt with privately. And interpersonal sin between two people oftentimes is dealt with on the personal level. If you hurt my feelings, we don't need to bring that before the church as long as you and I can work that out. James chapter 5, verses 16 through 20. James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. It did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced fruit. My brethren, if any of you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Again, we like to lift out 17 and 18 Lift that right out of there and just make it a teaching on prayer. It's not actually a teaching on prayer. It's a teaching on forgiveness and restoration. He says, so what do you do? You pray for each other. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Why? Because if I'm struggling with a sin and I confess it to my brother, I don't know if you've noticed this, but sin can be really hard to get rid of. If you're dealing with sin, just saying, oh, by the way, I'm having a problem with this. 
all better now. If only, right? If only a quick confession fixed it. But if I've got sin, I may really have a problem. It may have a grip on me. So I'm supposed to confess it to one another and then pray for each other. He says, and that prayer can be really effective. Elijah's prayer stopped the rain. So pray for each other, and that's how you're going to keep each other out of sin. Because what does it take? It takes prayer, the kind of prayer that can make it not rain for three months. That's the kind of prayer you need to restore and forgive, to bring people out of sin, to help rescue and that's his context of why he talks about Elijah. Pray for one another as you are confessing your sin to each other. And so as we, when, I, when somebody calls me up, and they need to talk sometimes right on the phone, I, I got a call from one of my campers uh, day for yesterday, just struggling. So before I got off the phone, I said, let me pray with you. And I prayed for him and prayed with him. Because that's where we need prayer. And when I find out about issues going on in the church, the first thing I do is I pray. The goal being for restoration and forgiveness. Confession is for restoration, not atonement. And that's why we need to start with that. That's why confession wasn't part of our being made right with God. We were made right with God because God atoned for us. We do not atone for our own sins. We do not make up for our errors. And so we are restored completely and absolutely by our faith in Christ. But that leads us to restoration. You are saved based on confessing Christ and accepting His atonement. You are not saved by anything you do. You are saved by accepting what He's done. You then, we then begin a human lifetime of confession of sin so as to receive the blessings of that atonement. And that will help us understand why, well, man, I, I got saved years ago, but I still have issues. Yes, because you've got to confess your sins all the time because you're going to keep sinning. And yeah, don't walk in the darkness, but confess your sins. Bring restoration. Bring restoration. So now let's think about how does that work as we conflict with each other in a personal relationship? In a personal relationship, we take the price and do not demand atonement. If Bev and I have a conflict, my normal human tendency, if I feel she's wronged me, is she has to atone for that. I am owed an apology. Why would I say it that way? But we say that, right? I am owed. So if she owes me an apology, her giving me an apology is what? Atonement. I am withholding restoration. I am withholding the relationship until she atones for her sin against me. But in Christ, oh, that's not how Jesus did it, did he? He restored first, atonement-wise. So I'm going to forgive her before she apologizes. Now, does that mean we're okay? No. 
our relationship is not restored in terms of interacting. She has not experienced the blessing of that forgiveness, which I am going to give at my own expense. But now the apology is not something I'm owed. It is just part of our restoration. It's so that we can get that past us. But boy, doesn't that change the equation? Because now I'm going to come to Bev and I'm not demanding something that she owes me. I'm saying, Bev, you know, I forgive you, but we need to talk about this. And Bev says, oh, and she's what? Touched by my grace and mercy? And so she says, I'm so sorry. And then you affirm that which you've already paid for. And the relationship is restored. And we're all the closer. But she didn't have to atone. And so often in our relationships, we try to make people atone by using an apology. And that can really mess up our unity because we hold back and we say, I'm not going to work to make this right until they're sorry. Imagine if Christ had done it that way. If Christ had sat back and said, well, if they're sorry, then I'll think about it. It says, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we even knew that we needed to be restored, he did all the work of restoration. And he says, now if you will acknowledge that, then we can talk about what went wrong. And so we go and say, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. And he saves us by that faith. And then he says, now let's talk about what went wrong. And we confess. But we confess within the context of relationship. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, our goal is to affirm the relationship. And we do need to confess our sins to one another, but we do it within the context of a relationship. Not, I will have the relationship with you once you atone to me. Now, I'll pay the price myself. That's a whole different idea. We prioritize unity. We atone for others. And confession is about restoring, not paying. This week, as we go through this week, we'll be posting online the seven A's of confession. The seven A's of confession. What makes a good confession? And we'll talk, we'll talk online, we'll, we'll post it from the peacemakers, how to do a good confession for the purpose of restoration and experiencing forgiveness while we prioritize unity. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your initiating relationship with us, that you did not count our sins against us, but you nailed them to the cross that you initiated and you did all the work and that we can never atone for our sins. Lord, many of us have felt that we had to come to you and list off our sins just to get in the door. But Lord, you knew we were sinners and you just asked us to put our trust and faith in you. But Lord, when we do that, it leads us to confession. We need to confess our sins once we understand that you have loved us and forgiven us. We need to just get that all off our chest so that we can experience the clean slate.
that we receive through the blood of Christ. Lord, help us to extend that to others. Not demand atonement from others. But be willing to pay the price even for their sin against us. So that then the confession can be about restoring the blessings of the relationship. May that help us to preserve our unity in our homes, in our neighborhoods, especially in the body here at Queens Corner. Thank you, Father, for your love, patience, and forgiveness for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Man's going to come back. We're going to sing, Give Us Clean Hands, the song of confession.